Okay, I'm one starstruck nerd today because we interviewed our first podcast guest with an IMDb profile. It's Johnny Owens. He's a physical therapist here in San Antonio. He's currently a clinical researcher in the Clinical Research Center at Brook Army Medical Center, a medical consultant to various professional and college medical organizations, and adjunct faculty at the Army Baylor Doctoral Physical Therapy Program. He's the former Chief of Human Performance Optimization at the Center for the Intrepid at Brook Army Military Medical Center. He specialized in management of lower extremity trauma and complex foot and ankle injuries of patients returning from the combat zone. He developed the Return to Run Clinical Pathway, which focuses on returning service members who have suffered trauma back to high-level activity, and most recently, the application of a novel technique, blood flow restriction training, to help restore strength after injuries. He has numerous multi-center research projects involving regenerative medicine, sports medicine, exoskeletons, blood flow restriction, and the rehab of the combat casualty. His work has been featured on 60 Minutes, NPR, Time Magazine, Forbes, ESPN, and Sports Illustrated. He did his undergrad work in biology at UT Austin and earned his master's of PT at University of Texas Medical Branch, Galveston. Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. All right, for episode 12, we have Johnny Owens on the podcast and just looking at the resume and journal articles and reading listening to podcasts that he's been on. I'm extremely humbled and I really know the the need for me to dig into my physiology textbook and dust that thing off because this guy's a wealth of knowledge and we appreciate him being on the podcast and we're going to dive right into the questions. Uh, BFR training has been very popular in, in the last couple of years and it has just as many people talking about it, if not more as dry needling and cupping. Can you kind of give us a uh, a broad perspective and history of its beginnings and where it is now, and just give us a little bit of uh, elevator speech science on what is going on. Sure, Nick. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate uh, appreciate this and appreciate your time of, of having me as a guest. So, uh, um, it's it's a pretty interesting tell, I guess, but pretty straightforward. And, and so, the the application of of some sort of hypoxic thing, you know, either total, total hypoxia, you know, in, in like an altitude chamber type situation or hypoxia through using, um, tourniquet type apparatuses has been around for, for quite some time as, as a way to try and understand a little bit of what's going on with muscle physiology. So, you know, you look in the late eighties, early nineties, there's, there's physiological lab studies, I'm just trying to understand a little bit better aerobic versus anaerobic metabolism. Um, and you can quickly get a muscle out of aerobic metabolism if you can deoxygenate it. And, and so that was kind of a, a quick way to go about it um, and, and have people do exercise and, and kind of try and study what's going on in, in the, uh, you know, whatever pathway you want to call it, anaerobic pathway or, or fast twitch fibers. Um, and, and then it really, it, you know, if you want to say how did it take off and when did it take off? Um, primarily in Japan, um, a gentleman named Sato, um, Dr. Sato, um, he, he really kind of championed it over there and, and uses a device called Katsu, which means pressure in Japanese, um, and, and is really, you see it more in the health and fitness, um, type of populations over in Japan. Um, and then I think clinically in the United States, how has it taken off? Um, so my background, we're both here in San Antonio. Um, I've been with the Department of Defense since 2004. And, and one of my, my main groups that I was in charge of was the combat casualty, um, primarily limb salvage patients. Uh, but we were also dealing with regenerative medicine techniques to try and regrow lost muscle tissue from blast trauma and, and the orthopedic sports medicine patient. And so we were just looking for clinical reasons or clinical applications to help us get muscle quantity and quality back when people couldn't tolerate loads. And so um, one thing you always see from war is you can kind of fast track things to the clinical settings. Every, 
no matter what you say about wars um, of who wins or who loses, there's always a winner. And that's the medical um, side of the house. And in every conflict, there's these just these medical advancements that come out really quickly because kind of all bets are off. You're just trying to do whatever you can as a team to get people back. So we started really looking at the application of a tourniquet um, on a limb to be able to get muscle quantity and quality changes similar to lifting heavy, but, but at much, much lower loads. Um, and so, you know, a, a brief explanation, I guess, of what blood flow restriction is. We call it personalized blood flow restriction because we we personalize the pressure to each individual by, by using some some Doppler-like techniques to, to measure blood flow. That also allows us to, to not only know how much it takes to make all the blood stop, but what percentages we should work at to maximize the effect and also be safe. Um, so you put a tourniquet system on the proximal uh, lower leg or proximal upper upper arm, um, and, and that's kind of the first key point. Uh, tourniquets are very specific in where they're supposed to be applied on the limb. Um, almost all of them are s- supposed to be applied proximally um, because the one of the easiest things you can do with a tourniquet is take out a nerve, especially if it's put in the wrong uh, area. So you don't put it on the lower leg, you don't put it on the lower arm where you have much more superficial nerves. You start to um, pump the tourniquet up using uh, this microprocessor system. It, it measures um, how much blood flow is going into the limb. And then once it gets to that blood flow signal is no longer going into the limb, um, we dial it back um, and, and allow some arterial inflow uh, while you exercise at a very low load. And so in the lower extremities, um, we, we think they can handle more pressure to get the maximal effect. So we typically use between 60 to 80 percent of what we call uh, PTP, personalized tourniquet pressure. So that's that's how much arterial inflow um, we're blocking. So anywhere from 20 to 40% arterial inflow is coming in. Um, the upper extremities, just there's much smaller muscle mass. Um, that's, that's kind of not very tolerable. So we typically use 40 to 50% pressure um, in the upper extremity. And so basically what you do is at that point, you can exercise with a low load. Um, and, and you kind of bypass Krebs and, and, uh, slow twitch metabolism and, and move into, to fast twitch. Um, and, and there's a lot of debate mechanistically. There's all sorts of, you know, we think this one's mechanistically more important than the other or whatever, but, um, no matter what you, it looks like you're able to work out at a low load and, and make adaptive muscle changes that are, they're close, probably not as good, but close to lifting it at a higher load, which is just the key for, for rehab. Um, cause most of our folks aren't in a, in a state where they can tolerate load. You, you know, you mentioned like the popularity, um, of, of being cupping and, and dry needling years ago. And, and it seems like BFR might need be the new shiny object, you know, and obviously I'm biased. Um, but, but I think the differentiator here is, is there just wasn't a lot of basic science, um, and, and, and stuff coming out of good labs to look at things like cupping and dry needling. I, I don't think we're going to see any powerful physiological lab that says, I, you know, I, I really want to understand the mechanism of cupping. Um, but, but we really have that with, with blood flow restriction. You know, my, my bib list is over 800 papers now. And, and if you just Google scholar, this, the amount of papers coming out, um, from just physiological folks trying to understand it, um, it makes your head spin. It's a daily basis. And, and so it has a real science-based foundation, which is a real differentiator um, between some of the other things we've seen. So if we can combine a science-based foundation with an evidence-based foundation with all these clinical trials we have going, that's a kind of a powerful one-two punch. Yeah, and my head just spun when I was looking at all the papers that were out there. And yeah, it's just tons of base, a lot of in-depth physiology with uh, muscle stem cells and all these different markers that go up with uh, blood flow restriction versus low load controls. And uh, I think you already dipped into our second question, but how do you protect the integrity of personalized blood flow restriction training so that it just doesn't go down this bro science path of people just buying Walgreens blood pressure cuffs and uh, all these cheap things from China and uh, the, the rage of the voodoo floss bands. And I think those do have voodoo floss, I think has a place, but I think it does something very different physiologically. I don't think that they're because of the placement of it and how tight it actually can be applied. 
Uh, I mean, you're putting it around a joint and it's a more distal application. So I think it's completely different. But how do you protect the integrity of uh, the personalized blood flow restriction training in a medical realm rather than the earlier focuses in Japan and more of the, the fitness and training realm? Yeah, yeah. So it's a good question. You know, as soon as you say this might be a way to increase muscle size, especially, um, but also muscle strength, you, you, you're going to have bro science all over it. And so, um, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's fine. And, and one thing we've always said is you can do whatever you want to yourself. Um, so if you go to the gym and you want to wrap a tourniquet around your, around your neck, you know, that's, <laughs> that's your choice. Um, so choosing whatever you want to do to your own body, uh, you know, that's, that's your right. Um, but once you're a clinician and you choose to do something to a, a patient, um, you've stepped into a completely different realm. And so, you know, you got to look historically, um, is, is there anything out there that we use medically, um, to stop blood flow? In, in patients, and, and that's kind of one of the first FDA questions, is what you're bringing to market here already in the, in the formulary of medical devices? And so you there is, and, and that's a tourniquet. Um, and, and so the second question is, are you, are you doing this to treat an injury, illness, or disease in a human being? And, and if you're doing this in a clinical setting, then yes, we are. Um, and, and if you make that statement, you're already back in the medical device realm. And, and the third one is, does what you're doing, um, this device you're putting on a patient affect a human bodily structure? And if you answer yes, then you're right back in the medical device realm. And so if you're, if you're hitting on any of those three points and blood flow restriction hits on all three, you've stepped in clinically into the medical device realm. And that was made very clear to us when we were learning because we don't understand tourniquets um, when we were first looking at this as clinicians. Um, so we, we leaned on our orthopedic surgeons and our, and our tourniquet experts in the DOD. And, and they said, okay, well, you know, we have decades of literature telling us how to apply tourniquets safely. And what's the, you know, what's, what do you have to look for in, in a proper way to occlude blood flow? And, and you just go up to the surgical suites and watch that. And so you guys in, in the rehab clinical setting can not ignore all that and bury your head in the sand and say, well, you know, we're just going to, we're just going to do this and call it a treadmill. Um, so, so that's one thing. I, and, and then I think clinically um, we've seen just such powerful results already that having these randomized cl controlled trials that are, that are very well funded um, being headed by you know, very well-respected both research and, and medical institutes around the world. Um, we have 26 ourselves that we're involved in. I, th I think that just keeps bringing it into the clinical realm. And, and, and avoids the, the bro science. And, and we're kind of peeling back kind of some very sophisticated or, you know, very different kind of questions than you might be looking for in the gym. You know, how can I increase angiogenesis in a diabetic? How can I, you know, bring out VEGF for neuroprotection in a, in a nerve injury? So those type of questions, I think, are to be a differentiator. Yeah. And can you kind of delve into how the Delphi unit is different from some of the other options on the market and then go through the the basics of your certification process that uh, you guys are heavily involved with? Yeah, sure. So um, tourniquets that are in non-austere environments, which means, you know, you're, you're not on a battlefield and you just need to stop blood flow. Um, th those kind of tourniquets, they're the saying is to save a life, not a limb. So you just get them on. They're very painful and hard to, to get to full occlusion, but you just do what you got to do because they need to be portable um, and, that, and that blocks blood flow. But there's all sorts of, of soft tissue damage that can happen along the way. And so the one thing, Tourniquet 101, is understanding how do you occlude blood flow. And, and when you're going after the large vessels, they live deep um, within the limb down close to the bone. So you have to really start to put some significant pressure through the limb to get down to those those large vessels. Um, unfortunately, there's all sorts of things above that that take the brunt of that pressure gradient, uh, the soft tissue and, and nerves. And so, you know, one thing we know from from tourniquets is the wider and more tapered the cuff, the less pressure you have to use. And so if you ask anyone in the tourniquet research world, what's what's one of the primary goals? It's to get occlusion with the least amount of pressure. To, to spare any potential nerve damage or other soft tissue damage. So that's that's the first thing that, that we use in a Delphi system is follow what's called the AORN safety guidelines. It's the it's basically the surgical guidelines for tourniquet safety. 
Second, um, Delphi, the Delphi system has a has a Doppler that's that's been validated in the literature built into the system. And so we're not trained in, in how to, to use Dopplers to measure for blood flow as clinicians. It's very questionable if that's even in any of our practice acts that we should be out there, you know, using handheld Dopplers and measuring blood flow. And so this system, um, you just you just basically push the Doppler button and it'll find it for you. Um, and, and then it's able to prescribe a percentage of the pressure um, based on based on what you as a clinician uh, set as your parameters. And, and it is it's a microprocessor system, which means that it's constantly monitoring the pressure. So you know exactly what the what the system's telling you the pressure is, is what is being put out through the cuff. Um, and that's been recently validated by a group in the UK that the Delphi systems were almost exactly with the pressure on their cuff is what the unit said. Um, some of these other ones that you mentioned, a uh, hand pump type thing, the pressure was significantly different under the cuff. And, and then the, you know, another thing is, is tourniquets inflate um, and the limb starts to move around, especially during exercise. And as a limb swells, the pressure needs to adapt to that so that all of a sudden you started at 80% limb occlusion and you're ending at hundred percent because of the limb swelling and the limb moving. And, and so these microprocessor systems, the tourniquet adapts to the pressure. So you see the numbers fluctuating as the limb moves around. That, that microprocessor and the ability to adapt the pressures is, is what took tourniquets in the FDA's classification from a class two, which is a moderately risky device, uh, to a class one. Um, so the invention of a modern day microprocessor kind of made tourniquets extremely safe. That's an interesting point that I didn't think about, about the changing limb size and as you exercise and the swelling and how it would have to adapt to that. And that just, that that's pretty amazing. And that just kind of makes it a little bit scarier for the lower end stuff because people would be like, yeah, this BFR stuff really hurts. And it's like, well, the last 10 reps you may be doing at full occlusion and uh, could be a little bit on the dangerous end if you're doing it for in kind of a recreational setting without proper clinical supervision. So that's just kind of a, a medical aside, even though nothing in this podcast is medical advice, we can kind of tell you what not to do. Yeah. You know, if you're going to do it on yourself, less is probably more um, just uh, you don't want to end up with a palsy. And, and so, you know, if you go to a cadaver lab and, and you just squeeze a nerve, um, you'll feel the fat slip off. And, and this has been published There's a journal bone and joint surgery paper that clearly put it out with tourniquets that the, the pressure gradient is the amount of pressure divided by the width of the cuff. And so if you're using something narrow and, and you've got it pretty tight, that creates a sharp gradient. And, and then um, uh, Dr. Kaysen and Ben Rosenblatt, um, Ben Rosenblatt's uh, with the Institute of Sport in the UK and Kaysen's a researcher, you know, they demonstrated that with BFR. If you're not using a microprocessor that's adapting to the pressure, you get these just sharp spikes in pressure gradients. And so that would be, you know, holding the nerve and then squeezing it tight quickly and letting go tight and letting go. And, and that can be even more of a potential risk. So, so yeah, if you're, if you're doing and just kind of wrapping and strapping, I, I wouldn't crank down really hard because you just don't want to not be able to feel your hand anymore. So bridging into the next question is the, the patient population groups that could benefit from this. I know I've sent a couple patients from my office for it, uh, but I've read about the, the different populations that can benefit from it. And there's some clinicians listening. There's some potential patients that could benefit from this listening. So can you kind of go through the, the clinical trials that have been, uh, been completed and that are in progress and uh, different patient groups that can benefit from this? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and so, you know, at first glance, it's almost like who can't benefit and, and our, our folks who do it, um, you know, we just kind of peel this onion up. We try it in this group and in this group. We, we have a, a private um, forum for, for our certified providers. We're at over 3,500 now um, worldwide. And, and so, you know, we're always posing this question, what about a patient with MS or a patient, you know, that's, that's had a, a neurologic injury or diabetic or whatever? Um, and so a lot of those, they seem like good candidates, but we, we don't have strong evidence yet. Um, and, and a lot of a lot of these clinical conditions, we, we just don't have the large multi-center trials to rubber stamp it, but, but it definitely seems like they get a benefit. And so probably the one target group that, that we see it the most in is, is the post-surgical knee. Um, and if you just look at the breadth of our trials, we have nine ACL trials going on. 
um, in the States and in Europe. And so that, that's caught a lot of attention. And, and a lot of times when you see these, um, many of them are funded. They're, they're from really well-respected institutes like University of Michigan and Memorial Hermann and, um, and Methodist Healthcare System, things like that. Um, what we've seen in, in pilot data has just been so promising. And there's, there's going to be some fantastic uh, kind of teaser data coming out from one of the trials at, at uh, AOSSM, the American Orthopedic Sports Medicine Society's meeting next year, um, where we saw changes not only in, in muscle, but but even down in the bone, post-surgical. And, and so that post-surgical knee population is great. Um, and, and we did initially just took scopes in, in the DOD, knee arthroscopy patients, and, and it was more of a safety to get through the institutional review board process to say, okay, is this safe post-surgically? Because there wasn't a lot of safety data on it and, and looked for signs of, of thrombus formation in, in the control group, in the BFR group after doing it for four weeks and, and didn't find any issues with that um, at all. And, and, and then we also found that, that muscle size and muscle strength and then some functional changes and pain scores were significantly lower in the BFR group. And so that's expanded into, again, to more of these larger knee reconstructions. And, and I guess if you want to say, you know, what about even like a, a big knee reconstruction, like a multi-leg knee uh, surgery? Just just a few weeks ago in, in the Journal of Arthroscopy, which is pretty much the, the Bible for orthopedic arthrosco arthrosco arthroscopy surgeons in the U.S., um, Dr. LaProd put a level five commentary on this is, you know, when and where and why I think we should do BFR um, in post-surgical knees. And, and he's the one of the top multi-leg knee surgeons in, in the country. Um, you know, any Olympic athlete suffers a, a bad knee injury. They're going to Dr. LaProd at, at Stedman Philippon. And so that, that's a big group. The, the largest BFR trial in, in the world right now is, is one that's being sponsored by METRIC, the Major Extremity Trauma Research Consortium. Um, and, it, and it's applying BFR after femur fractures at nine of the largest trauma centers in the country. Um, so we're, we're not only looking at, you know, is there is there ways when you're in a disuse state to be able to preserve the, the muscle size and strength, but also, you know, does it does it help with bone? Does it hurt bone? Um, anecdotally we've seen in the DOD cause we just had so many bone injuries that, that it's very positive, um, for, for maintaining soft tissue and function, but, but also maybe, um, we have some play on bone. Um, and, and so I think any of your orthopedic sports med type injuries, um, are, are just prime for this, the elbow injuries, wrist injuries, we're seeing changes, um, you know, at, at, at the hip, um, changes in the shoulder. We just don't have strong enough evidence yet to to say, yes, this is for sure a, a positive thing. And then there's all the others. Um, probably the, the, the group that we feel is going to benefit the most is, is the sarcopenic patient and, or, or the geriatric. So as you get older, uh, many people lose the ability to, to maintain muscle and, and they actually start to lose muscle. And even if they exercise, they can't really beat the amount of loss. And so a lot of that is load-based. Um, but there also might be some other pathways that, that are, that are at play there and, and they seem to respond extremely well to BFR. And so you're, the baby boomers are going to be the, the largest portion of our population. Uh, they already are. And, and moving forward, there's all sorts of joint arthroplasties and, and arthritic conditions, um, that, that aren't going to handle load. And we as clinicians have to find a way to, to get them some muscle strength and hypertrophy. And so we have clinical trials in total knees. We're about to start a, a huge total hip trial in Germany, um, seeing if we can make changes there and, and even arthritic trials in those groups. And then diabetics um, getting ready, hopefully, to start a trial in Germany with a large center out there. Um, kids with neurologic injuries up at, at Kennedy Krieger, Johns Hopkins, um, getting pilot data started up there. So sky's kind of the limit. What, what we're also looking at is, can we can we dial in our treatments into a very um, kind of laser focused approach? And so we've we've seen with conditions like if you tear your ACL um, and, and go through rehab, the the twelve weeks after that injury, things like myostatin are significantly elevated, um, and, and myostatin blocks muscle from being added. And myostatin looks like it might be a progenitor for fibrosis. And, and so we need to look at modalities that can maybe blunt the myostatin activation and, and BFR. Not a lot yet has been out there, but we do have a couple published papers showing BFR um, does blunt myostatin down. 
um, or, you know, proliferation of progenitor or if you want to call them stem cells, um, because we've also seen in very well published papers after like tearing an ACL, stem cell content is down not only after the injury, but six months after rehab. Um, and, and there's significant fibrosis around the muscle fiber as well. So we're, we're trying to dial in of when and sh- how can we apply this to, to maybe help those pathways um, rebound. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point because there's I see a lot of uh, patients that there's one of two barriers to loading heavy. And I, I've heard you say that if you can lift heavy, still lift heavy. Like if there's nothing that is stopping you from putting a lot of load into the muscle, like do that. But a lot of people are inhibited by either fear and anxiety of getting under heavy weight or lifting heavy weight because they think they're either too old or deconditioned or pain or orthopedics are the limiting factor of them lifting heavy weight. So I think that that's a a good point to drive home is you don't meet many 70 year olds that are pulling heavy deadlifts off the floor. Uh, they're there, but they're, they're the, the minority in the gym. So that if you can kind of make something less threatening and still provide the benefit, I think that is, it's a very empowering thing. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, it's sexy for people to show the the grandma doing a deadlift or something, but, but you're right. In, in totality, you, you just don't see that. And, and they're either, you know, nervous and there, there is potential for injury. Um, and lots of times they, they just, are load intolerant because of many things. And, and, you know, we, we often say BFR can maybe be the bridge for them. Um, cause we see it, you know, we prehab people the you know, before, uh, joint arthroplasty and they're like, wow, you know, I haven't felt my muscle feel like this in forever. Then get surgery, maybe do it, you know, a little while longer after surgery. And, and then it's like, okay, now you can go to the gym cause you, you actually got some muscle that can respond and we want you to use it. Um, or, or you can potentially lose it. And, 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 and then also, you know, like you said, the orthopedic restriction, what, what we're really learning is the acuity of what we can do is, is a big factor. And so if, if you got someone who's under restrictions for six to eight weeks, the, the muscle really looks like it's gone to hell in a handbasket. And, and we are, you know, we're even seeing osteoporotic type effects in the bone, even in young healthies. And, and so the quicker we can get in and, and slow that process, it seems like the quicker we can recover um, and maybe recover to a much higher level. Um, otherwise we're kind of chasing our tails and once the damage is done, it's very hard to reverse. We, we rarely get people back from a significant injury or surgery to 110%, you know, um, they, they might say it, they feel like it, you hear from the athletes and then we get in there and, and I've seen it, you know, we work with so many teams now and, and we look at them and, and we get some measurements and testing and it's like, you're, no, you're not, you're not even close to, you know, your baseline, um, from what we know that baseline is. Yeah, and I think there's a huge gap, especially in uh, the ACL rehab, because I've got a a volleyball player that she just tore the same ACL for the third time, Uh, and it was repaired by one of the most competent surgeons, in my opinion, but maybe wasn't the most competent rehab protocol, and I think that if uh, we were able to implement some of the the BFR, uh, that could have possibly, I mean, it's pure supposition because you can't really go, oh yeah, let's, let's kind of go back in time and look forward with our crystal ball. But you, you gotta, you can't help but wonder because I mean, this girl, you tell her to do something and there's a reason she's a D1 college athlete. She's a hard worker and you tell her what to do and she's going to do 10 times that and, and really work hard. So it's like, if if you're climbing, climbing the ladder really fast, you better make sure it's leaned against the right building. Yeah. You know, and it's so common to hear those type of stories and, and, and she's going to have a rough, a rough life with that knee now. Um, she's just set up for arthritic changes, not only from the, you know, the coup counter coup effect of, of tearing the ACL on the bone, but, but then just, just over time. And, and so that's been kind of a problem is we've really, you know, we're really dialing in of like, okay, what's the, the healing response on something like an ACL? And, you know, you, your risk factors go up significantly if, you know, before that first nine months, you return to some of the plane. So we're really looking at that. But, but what we have to really start understanding physiologically is, okay, what's the healing response time of muscle? Um, and, and we haven't really been laser focused of understanding that. And in that JOR paper, you know, six months out, the muscle still 
it's fibrosed around the muscle fiber or the stem cells are blunted down or the packs, you know, satellite cells, whatever we want to call them, that, that muscle is not responding properly. Um, and, and if we can try and reverse that process early, then we might have good muscle that goes along with a good biologic repair of the ACL. And, and, and that's what we need. And so Chris Fry and Brian Noren, who are some of our colleagues at University of Kentucky, University of Texas Medical Branch, they have an NIH-funded trial to repeat their original work, looking at what happens to muscle using BFR now um, to see if they're making adaptive changes. It's, it's a super powerful trial. So hopefully we see some positive results. So let's kind of bridge into, because I know if I was listening to this, you'd be like, yeah, you have all these downstream effects, but what happens on the proximal side of things? Does that not have any effect or is there a negative effect or is there a positive effect and why or how does that happen? Because I know that'd be going through my brain if it was the first I had heard of this. I'd be like, yeah, it's great for everything uh, distal to the, the shoulder and distal to the to the thigh, but what happens in the, the, the proximal areas? Yeah, that, that, and that's a very, very common question. And so it's very common, especially in the clinical setting, just because we see so many shoulder injuries and, and so many um, hip type injuries. Um, and then, you know, we can even discuss, does it go even more proximal into the, into the trunk muscles of the spine, which, which I'm not sure, but the, the, the real answer is, no one really knows. And if someone tells you this is why, you know, and, and they're black and white, they're full of it. Um, there, there's some prevailing theories and, and one of them really makes the most sense. And, and that is when you put the cuff on and you do a multi-joint type exercise, um, let's say squats, what we do know is that you really start to fatigue the, the muscle rather rapidly below the cuff. And so the quads would start to fatigue earlier than they're, they're used to. And, and your body just has these, uh, you know, pathways or, or, or redundant systems that says, okay, I'm going to have to keep doing whatever this, this person's doing right now. I, I just need to get through it. Um, it's a fight or flight type response almost. So I'm going to recruit something to help with this because this muscle is just tapping out. So, so then it goes to using more proximal glute, um, to be able to just finish that, that squat. Um, so it, it becomes a much more of a prime mover. And, and we've seen that in, in a BFR study with squats uh, under low load versus low load with BFR. They not only got stronger in their squats, but their glute um, on imaging had got almost 10% bigger. We've seen there's been multiple bench press studies that, it, that have looked at this as well. And so that, that's this downstream fatigue theory. If I'm doing bench with the cuffs on, um, I'm going to fatigue my triceps rather rapidly, and then my pec has to become more of a prime mover. There's even EMG data that's shown the pec has more EMG activation whenever the cuff is on. And, and EMG isn't a systemic type response. That, that would be the muscles being forced to work harder. Um, Jeremy Lineke is a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Abe, and their group at Ole Miss. We just put a paper out in, in uh, the ACSM journal, um, kind of what we know from the clinic to going in. I mean, what we know from the lab going into the clinic. And, and we do make note that if that's the case, just downstream fatigue, um, using a higher pressure to, to get the muscle to fatigue faster below it will probably allow you to, to get to those proximal muscles quicker. So um, we've, we've seen muscle activation and fatigue data that at 40% pressure, 60% pressure, and 80% pressure in the lower extremities, 80% had a significant difference at, at almost every set in, in the quad. And so the muscle below the cuff just becomes so kind of the focus mentally because of the amount of metabolites building up, the quicker you can get it to start to fatigue, probably the quicker we can get to the, to the proximal muscles. And so we're really interested in this again, from our total joint trials, but um, things like, you know, our, our femoral acetabular impingement type stuff, which is a huge problem without a great solution um, is what we're looking to, to also apply that kind of theory. The, the other theory is okay well you know you're just you're building this anabolic response does does that create this sort of systemic effect and that's all you know the old weightlifter kind of motto if you want bigger biceps you got to do some heavy squats to kind of curse your body through of testosterone and other things that gets a lot of pushback um from the physiology side um but you know there might be there might be something to it. Um, like Jeremy, he would he he would like be pulling his hair out. Um, hear me even give credence to it. I think. Um, but 
there, there's a paper Matarami has published in the ACSM journal um, where they did light bi- light bicep curls on one arm and then they did light squats um, and, and they found significantly bigger strength and hypertrophy in the BFR group that did the light squats um, combined with arm curls without the tourniquet on. Um, and, and then another paper just came out recently from Stuart Warmington's group in Australia that repeated that study um, and found in the BFR group that there was um, an increase in, in bicep strength um, if they had done some lower extremity exercises compared to the control group. So, so there might be a, a systemic effect. There could be some sort of crossover effect. We're not sure. So we're, we're going to look at this. Um, hopefully, uh, it's, it's about to kick off in a very large rotator cuff trial with Dan Buss up in Minnesota. Um, and Tristan Mars out of Ashish Betty's lab at Michigan um, to see if we can make adaptive changes after rotator cuff repair. Um, and, and also looking again at some of those pathways. Can we slow down fatty infiltrate um, in, in the rotator cuff, which is one of the biggest hindrances to repair? Um, the last theory with nothing really to back it up is it's, it's basically um, like traffic being backed up at a light. So if, if you're blocking blood flow going down into the limb, you're blocking it just proximal to it. Um, and, and blood isn't, is kind of just getting pushed back, back, back and back. And you have this backflow effect. So you have some sort of mild hypoxia there. Um, but, but that's kind of the, the, the three theories that, that you hear tossed around right now. And as far as application in our field, I, it, it would eliminate a lot of frustrating, very complex cueing. Cause I can't tell you how many times I'm working with someone that we label a motor moron and we're trying to like rebuild their squat from the bottom up to find their hip uh, and they're just driving their knees into extension instead of opening their hips. And it's just like you, you touch everyone halfway between the knee and the hip at, in the lateralis and they just jump off the table uh, just because that's their, that's their butt. Uh, and, and then also just trying to get someone to use their cuff rather than their lateral elbow and tennis elbows are some of the hardest things to fix in our office, just because it's like, you can't get people to stop using that extensor bundle and they're just using it as their shoulder there. And, and then all the connections with the thumb in that, in that area as well. It's just a, a pain in the butt to get someone to actually isolate and find their, their posterior cuff. Uh, and I think that this would eliminate all the complex cueing and just go, okay, we're just going to physiologically make you do this. Yeah. You know, and I think we, we kind of fool ourselves by, you know, thinking that we can override these motor patterns by our, our, our magic hands or magic speech. Sometimes, um, you know, a lot of these are just, you know, it's, it's an adaptive pattern that's been gone on for years, maybe their entire life. And so, um, I just, you know, we always, I always question how could we ever prove that we've ever done anything to change that? Um, so yeah, then, then, you know, it's this whole thing, like show me a problem and show me the physiological maybe solution. And, and then maybe we, we can go after it that way. So, it, you know, that's, that's a great point you made. Let, let's go at it physiologically. Maybe if we do induce quick fatigue, then it's, it's much easier to go after that, that proximal group. And I, and I would say, you know, lateral epi is, is just such a pain in the ass. And so, um, we have anecdotally seen great results. Um, again, it's hard to say. Um, we first in the military, so trigger pullers—they just have a really hard time um, with, with with getting lateral epicondylitis, and and you you can't stop shooting, um, especially in our special forces populations who really suffer with it, and it just keeps getting exacerbated. And so, um, we in the DoD, we've seen we've seen again. I'm repeating myself, but but good anecdotal results. We submitted for a a grant last year uh, through Congressionally Directed Military Research Program, and we didn't get it for it, um, but but we felt strong enough about it that we've reached out to civilian partners. And so the Cleveland Clinic, um, and, and it looks like now NYU are both going to start um, lateral epi trials to, to kind of see if, if what we're seeing makes sense. The, the biggest problem with tendons is they need load, um, but there's so much pain involved. And, and so especially a lateral epi, just gripping makes it hurt. So when you put the tourniquet on, and you start going, it's, you kind of just feel the tourniquet and the metabolite build up, but you can start to get some progressive load on the tendon, which, which is probably getting some collagen synthesis going. Um, and, and there's an analgesic response that we, we see almost across the board with BFR. And so these folks get done and their elbow feels much better. 
which empowers them to keep doing it because we need them to just keep loading it and then just get them off the tourniquet and get into moderate to heavy loads and maybe restore true tendon. That was way off the proximal tongue. I think that's a good segue into our next uh, question on, you were talking about how just gripping is painful and I, some of these patients, you have to send them for an injection just to inhibit the pain because they can't do anything. I mean, they can't even straighten their elbow. They can't do isometrics. They can't do anything. And that's just pumping the brakes on your rehab. And I can't really do anything if I can't put any load into the tendon. But with anything that has that dramatic of an effect, there's always side effects. So I view this as a very viable alternative to uh, a corticosteroid injection uh, in a tendon that's very apt to rupture, like, I mean, Achilles and elbows, there's not a lot of people that want to do them unless it's absolutely necessary. So let's kind of talk about how uh, this could possibly be a, a tool to use in that environment. I, I think you can kind of bundle this in, into two two things. So, you know, corticosteroid and, and then, you know, orthobiologics themselves and, and, you know, corticosteroids. And, and I just got back from speaking at the NHL symposium up in Toronto and, and our panel was discussing the role of orthobiologics in injury. And, and also, you know, can we incorporate BFR into this? And, and, and so what, what we have to look at then is a potential regenerative response to these injuries. And so, you know, tendon, you would like to, to regenerate the tissue um, to more viable tissue. Um, and, and, you know, we see from some of the papers, imaging, it doesn't look like it's changed at all, um, where we have damage, but, but the fibers around that damage, uh, might've been able to, to do more collagen synthesis and, and gets tougher to almost like guy wires. They're protecting the, those damaged areas better, but, but if you can't load and it hurts, you know, it, it just doesn't work. And so that's a, that's part of the problem with a lot of our tendon protocols, um, they're painful and, and humans have a hard time causing pain on themselves. And, and then you look at it and you say, okay, you've got to make this area hurt um, and keep adding load to it and, and make it hurt more when it, when it stops hurting and do that multiple times a day and do that for weeks, maybe months. And, and you can't do anything else but that, you know, you got to give up your sport and, and everything else. So compliance is, is hard. Um, and, and so we're trying to really see, is there other ways to skin the cat with this? mechanistically and physiologically. And, and so for one, this analgesic effect is, is powerful. And so they do it and during it, they usually don't feel that area of, of pain. And, and then when they get done, um, sometimes for hours, sometimes longer, um, it feels better. And, and so for one, that's, that's what you look for from an injection is, is there an analgesic benefit to this? Now, you, you always got to be careful. I, I don't want to block pain in areas where I, I could be causing more damage. So, you know, if I got an articular lesion and, and I'm blocking pain and they're just grinding down that lesion, that's a problem. But tendon, we know we need to load it. Um, and, and so having analgesia while you're loading it to stimulate this collagen synthetic response is, is powerful. A steroid injection is a last ditch result. Um, if, if you just can't get out of this pain and it's debilitating for life. But, but if you talk to most of the docs, they would prefer not to do that. Um, especially into tendon tissue. So then what everyone's turning to now is, okay, is there an orthobiologic approach? And, and if you go to any of the big orthopedic conferences, it's almost no talk about surgeries anymore. It's just talk about orthobiologics. And, and Jimmy Andrews um, down at the Andrews Institute in Florida, he's kind of the, the godfather of orthopedics here in the, in the country. Um, you know, he made a statement that the biologics are the going to be the future of orthopedics. They're, you know, bigger invention than the arthroscope. So then what is that? Biologics, you've got PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma, and you have all these stem cell injections, if, if you can even call them that, where they're, they're shooting this into yeah. structures, trying to make changes. Um, and, and so, you know, the problem with those is viability of the cells um, once you're over 35, it's hard to even say that we have stem cells in us anymore. Um, you know, you start to call them progenitor cells. And, and, and so then we're looking at what, what can you do to manipulate the progenitor cells to come out and, and do something. And so what we've seen with BFR is um, from a very good lab in Europe that the muscle stem cell, if you want to call, call it that, some people call them um, 
uh, myocyte, I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, satellite cells. They, they basically live near the capillary beds. And when you damage muscle, they'll come out and go repair the muscle. Or um, when you've done, you know, heavy lifting or, or some sort of thing that needs to increase muscle size, they'll come out and add a new myocyte. Um, in this paper, over three weeks of BFR training, they had a, a really huge proliferation of those satellite cells coming out and then going into the muscle fiber and becoming new myocytes um, once they looked at biopsy. And so, so that's huge because then you say for muscle injuries, those are what I want to come out. I want those, those myogenic stem cells to come out because they are muscle progenitor stem cells and, and they'll repair muscle, not only from a muscle injury, but they will be the ones that we hope will reverse what we've seen in these ACL trials where they're significantly blunted after six months. So I think an interesting point with the, the stem cells is you have a lot of people that are saying they're doing stem cells and they're not very viable. And at least to my knowledge, uh, there's only three locations in the U.S. that are doing FDA approved trials on like viable stem cells. And I know one of them was with Jaime Garza here in San Antonio, and then they're doing another one at Tulane and then at an institution up in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, and there's a lot of these clinics and sports medicine clinics that are saying they're doing stem cells, but I'm like, you might as well inject dead toenails into somebody because that's what they're paying 1200 bucks for. Cause it's not very viable. Right. Uh, is that kind of in line with what you're seeing? Yeah, for sure. And, and so actually I was just speaking at a symposium with Buddy Savoy um, out of Tulane who works with the lab who's doing that research. And, and he did reiterate that point, you know, after your third decade of life, your viable stem cells are, are minimal at best. Um, the, the problem is then people are looking for outside sources and, and using these cryogenically frozen amniotic stem cells, which are, are probably dead as you're shooting them in. Um, so the alternative then from a rehab perspective is, well, we, we do know we have these progenitor cells in, in the bone marrow, in the adipose tissue, which are, are powerful. They can, they can differentiate or, and, and say, okay, you put me into this area um, and make me do whatever that area does. So if you shoot me in tendon, make me do tendony things and, and I can maybe create a regenerative response. Um, so the, the hard part is then if I'm going to go after those, I, I need to go into the bone marrow and harvest them. And that's what the orthopedic surgeons do now. Um, so what, what we do know is a hypoxic gradient, the bone marrow is, is a pretty hypoxic environment. And, and when you create a hypoxic gradient within the limb, um, the, the soft tissue, maybe that hypoxic environment helps kind of coax them out. But we have early pilot data that it's being presented next month, um, from the Andrews Institute that an acute bout of BFR makes those hematopoietic stem cells come out, um, significantly higher than the, than the control group does of, of a single set of exercises. And, and then what you can do if you're looking from a, a PRP type injection is, okay, now draw the blood. You've kind of supercharged the blood with these progenitor cells. And, and that PRP has probably some viable uh, stem cell-like things that, that you should inject. And, and then the next phase is, okay, now let's continue the BFR rehab afterwards um, to, to kind of support what that injection did. So that, that's our current kind of thoughts on, on what we're looking at with this. Yeah. And I've, I've had some patients that have gone to uh, Houston for PRP therapy. And I'm like, they're putting you in a boot for eight weeks for plantar fasciitis and immobilizing it. It's like, are you getting better from the immobilization or are you getting better from the $2,000 worth of your own blood that they're injecting back into you? Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me started on that. So that, that's, that is, and I, and I spoke at AMSSM, which, you know, that's in front of 3000 of the, the sports med primary care physicians and, and kind of threw that gauntlet down, you know, and, and we knew this from a lot of our regenerative medicine work. If, if you're going to try and create a regenerative response, it has to have a stimulus. And so to inject something that you say this is regenerate and, and then immobilize, you've basically just did nothing, um, in my opinion. And I, and I think a lot of the scientists that look at this agree. We don't know timing, you know, and so maybe there is a this quiescent period you should have after that injection. Um, but you certainly need some sort of stimulus to support it. And, and so, uh, yeah, immobilization, maybe they just got better from that. A lot of people don't get better. I was with a very high end athlete that got a PRP injection and they put them in a leg immobilizer for six weeks. Um, 
So yeah, <laughs> give me a break. Yeah, the the one thing you know you you probably don't want to be on NSAIDs and you know we need that inflammatory response afterwards. What what, what we think now is the the macrophages are coming in and actually eating. Um, these progenitor cells, and they're becoming these kind of super kind of cells at this point to, to create the response. But, but, but yeah, I can get on my soapbox for hours on that one. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been on my soapbox for years, man. Yeah, and that's good, man. <laughs> and I, I think that if we do have to send someone for a steroid injection, the, the education piece is on us as kind of the conservative providers going, hey, this, and I, I always tell people, I'm like, have you played Super Mario Brothers? And people are like, yeah. And I'm like, this injection is nothing more than the star for Mario Brothers. Like, if you don't do any rehab during your pain-free window, it's like dropping the controller on the ground and not doing anything. Yeah. But if you if you do your rehab, it's like sprinting to the end of the level and completing it and getting through a lot of possible obstacles. And people understand that. But if you don't educate that on, them on that, you can't expect the the DO or the pain management doc to do it because they're just they're just poking people all day and they're like, "Yep, here's your shot." Yeah, cha-ching, cha-ching. Yeah, so there definitely is a follow up. That that post steroid injection, if you have to go to that point, is just a ripe window because you want to you want to respect the tendon. It's obviously you know bad enough that they had to go that route. So a, a low load alternative early on just to start loading the tendon with a tourniquet. Um, does you know you get the loading response you slowly want to increase the load but but what you're also getting very early which you wouldn't get with just low loading alone is is muscle strength and hypertrophy to support the tendon and and the tendon you know bleeds out into the musculotendinous junction and it, and it kind of becomes part muscle part tendon and then it moves on and, and you've got the extracellular matrix around the muscle um which helps support the tendon as well it's it's a it's a stiff structure so um, what we've also seen with BFR is we're proliferating ECM, which which is what you want to see as an overall kind of supportive structure for the tendon. So to get that early on, I think key. All right. So I think that's a good time to wrap this up. And I, I really thank you, Johnny, for taking the time to to really nerd out with us from a physiology and, and, and rehab standpoint. And I, I hope your Longhorns rebound from their season opener. Maryland seems to be their Achilles heel. You had to bring that up. We were, we were uh, I got to wait. Otherwise you just leave and not talk to me the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, we'll see, man. It's, it's kind of uh, I'm used to this every year now. It seems like this is the way we go. I've been a spoiled Wisconsin fan the last couple of years. So our run's been good. There you go. Excellent. Well, thanks again for taking the time. Is there any place that people can learn more about what you're you're doing these days? Any websites, any any uh, social media? And I'll make sure we post that to the show notes so people can check it out. Yeah. So our website's uh, owensrecoveryscience.com. Uh, we have blogs on there. Um, we have a, a podcast that we've started where we, we just discuss some topics um, and then we interview friends and researchers and surgeons and, and everyone else to discuss things and question and answers. Um, and we're on social media, majority of the channels at owensrecoveryscience.com. Um, so yeah, anyone who likes to check it out, appreciate it. Excellent. Well, thanks again for taking the time and I'll make sure that uh, we stay in touch, man. All right, man. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thank you.